This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, director of CT Media. With me is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today, we're going to be talking about the possibility of indictments of former president of Donald Trump. I'm going to be joined by two guests who will join me for a conversation about the banking crisis. And then we're going to end by talking about Rain Wilson and a recent comment he made about the way Christians are portrayed in TV and film. Stay with us. All right, Russell. So you and I are actually. This is the first time we've recorded the bulletin face to face. So we've this week is is a, a fun one. It's a little chopped up. We have a conversation we did a, a day or two ago, and yeah, we have a third segment to the thing. But we're kicking off this week face to face here in D.C. Okay. So, do you know the number of investigations that are going on that might result in indictment for Donald Trump? Well, there's at least four. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is yeah, that I'm aware. The, of. There, there's Georgia. There's the Mar-a-Lago documents case. There's January 6th, overturning the election, federal DOJ case, and then, of course, this New York case. So we're recording this at 7 a.m. Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. We don't know what's going to happen between now and the time that this airs. There was some speculation that an indictment was going to come down yesterday in this New York case. Some speculation being oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. former president of the United States posted on Truth Social, I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay, so the details of this case, you and I are not lawyers. There's a lot of controversy around this case in particular. Yeah. And several analysts looking at it have said, of all the cases that are sort of under investigation right now, this is probably the weakest one. There's questions about the way the investigation is being framed. There's questions about statute of limitations. So with all those caveats in the background of this one, the general gist of this is that it's related to a hush money payment that was made to Stormy Daniels, an adult film star who claims to have slept with Donald Trump. They made the hush money payment, so that seems to be fairly straightforward as to what happened, the truth of the story. So anyway, so there was a hush money payment to her through Michael Cohen, Trump's personal lawyer. And then there were several mechanisms. Again, we'll put some links where people want to get into the details. But there were several mechanisms at work that funneled campaign money in for reimbursing those payments. So the gist of the prosecution, if it happens, is going to be around the misuse of campaign funds in order to make this payment. The prosecutor behind the case, his name is Alvin Bragg. This is a progressive prosecutor who has been criticized quite a bit by the right in the midst of this because he's somebody who's doing a lot to sort of reduce the sentences that he's requesting. He does these restorative justice sessions that are very controversial in terms of putting the perpetrator of a crime in the same room as the victim of the crime and, you know, pursuing a certain kind of reconciliation. He wants to reduce pretrial incarceration. We'll set all that aside except to say there's controversy around whether it should be charged, whether there's hypocrisy in the fact that he's going so hard after Trump. That's the background. So a couple of developments around this. Like you said, Trump said he was going to be arrested yesterday. It didn't happen. 
But I, I thought one place to start was a quote that, that came, uh, I believe it was yesterday as well, maybe it, it might have been Monday, from Ron DeSantis, presumptive candidate for the presidency. He was asked about all of this. In the statement, he begins by kind of blasting Bragg for all of these reasons. But then he says this, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I can't speak to that. And, you know, of course, immediately the sort of Trumpy right jumps in, comes yeah. after Ron DeSantis, and then Trump jumps on Truth Social and says, well, we, you know, we don't know what's going to come out about Ron DeSantis. It could come out from other women, teenage girls, maybe even a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Lots happening right now. A lot is happening right now, yeah. And it's one of the questions at the heart of this case is why was the hush money paid? Was it paid in order to prevent an election problem, in which case it's a campaign finance problem, or is it to preserve embarrassment in front of Melania or mm-hmm. uh, you know the rest of the family and so forth? So that's going to be a key part of this. I agree that almost everybody I know in the legal area would say, of all of the cases, this is the weakest one, not just legally, but also is going to be the weakest one in terms of speaking to people about why it's necessary. Because one of the things that we have learned coming out of the Clinton era is that when something has to do with sex, people immediately just say, well, then that's private. doesn't matter what you do. So that's that's a, a longer haul. What I'm more concerned about is two things I'm more concerned about here. One of them is we can have a debate over whether or not this ought to be prosecuted, whether or not this ought to be illegal, or whether it is a crime. What we as Christians shouldn't do, though, is, well, who amongst us hasn't paid hush money to a porn star. I mean, uh, it's the equivocation, the, the equivocation. And I mean, there are all kinds of things that are not illegal mm-hmm. that are nonetheless morally repulsive and morally horrifying. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, question, of course, is an alleged affair. We don't have proof of this, but what we have is Donald Trump calling her horse face, mm-hmm. you know, using this sort of language against women. This is an awful and morally unbelievable situation anyway. Right. And it kind of shows us where we are, that even among kind of evangelical Christians who want to defend the former president, there's almost nobody saying, well, he would never do that. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's what difference does this make? Well, this might not should make some difference in a courthouse, but it matters in terms of what kind of character somebody has. But the second thing is the way that the former president through social media is essentially calling on people to protest using very similar language to January 6th, calling people together, take your country back. You're not going to have a country anymore, that kind of language as well as speaking directly to New York City police, saying, you all support me, you endorsed me, how are you going to let this happen? Mm -hmm. Meaning, how are you going to protect those charged with carrying out the law from a mob? That is really concerning to me. This may be completely ridiculous by the time this airs, 
I feel a little better today than I did yesterday about whether or not we're going to see January 6th style mob, but just because we didn't have a lot of uh, right uh, the, the protests. There were small protests around the country, but not like I would expect. I thought it was so interesting that DeSantis said this, because this is really the first time he's kind of taken a swing at Trump. And he doesn't take a swing at him over policy. He's not let there be half an inch of a gap between them on policy. But he does it here. He does mm. it on these moral and ethical questions. One of my questions for you, is this something that we saw in 2016? Were candidates in 2016 going right at this moral and ethical stuff? And did it make a difference in those primaries? Well, nothing made a difference in, in right, the primaries right, 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 right. because, I mean, you think about there were different tactics that were taken. And so Jeb Bush, for instance, would come at this more directly. But a Ted Cruz, and until the very end, Marco Rubio had the mindset, we're not going to attack him. I think at the beginning, because they thought this is going to burn out, it's not going to be here, but they wanted to kind of be the last man standing after he fell in order to inherit his yeah. support base. It seems like what DeSantis is wanting to do is to say, I want to present myself as a competent non-repulsive, stable uh, <laughs> Trump. Stable, and I, I, not, not necessarily stable genius. Not stable category, genius. But yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Stable and genius, maybe he thinks he right. is, but not. So I think that's kind of how he's presenting it. I don't know that that's going to work, mm -hmm. but that's the gambit he's trying. You know, in the media, there was nonstop talk about mm -hmm. Trump's character. And, you know, there has been for what, eight, eight years now. But thinking about the way the sort of candidates approach him, there was that shift with Rubio towards the end. He tried to sort of punch for punch with Trump, yeah. which did just did fell so flat. Mm -hmm. And I do think this comes back to this basic fundamental question. There were a lot of people in 2016 who were drawing this line in the sand. We've talked before about that January 2016 issue of National Review that was the against Trump issue. You mm -hmm. wrote a piece in there. 22 people wrote for it. And most of the people who wrote in that article against Donald Trump spoke about character, you know, spoke about personality, spoke about all the reasons he was unfit for office. And looking back now, almost all of those people have flipped and have supported Trump and endorsed him in 2020. Is that right? Yeah. This brings me back to the thing that I have felt for almost six months now since Trump announced the nomination. I feel like we're right where we were eight years ago when these conversations were just starting around Donald Trump. And it's like the glaringly obvious character questions, all of the open investigations, everything else. There's lots of evangelical Christian types who have sort of turned now and said, okay, it's time to move on. You're just, you're hearing tons of that kind of language. And my question is, is this deja vu all over again? Yeah, because I mean, they're not saying for the most part, let's move on because of character personality disorder, assault on democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of those things. It's this is somebody who obviously is filled with drama and is not going to uh, right. win. And so let's find somebody who's going to, to win. That's a very different thing than actually. And it's a telling thing. It is a telling thing. And that's part of what's happening right now. I mean, when we say, is this 2016 all over again? No, because everybody's bored. Hmm. The Trump supporters are bored. Mm. The Trump opponents are bored. It's the Daniel Patrick Moynihan defining deviancy down. We've lived in this for seven years that we just are, okay. I mean, you, you just think about 
any number of these things. A former president of the United States is allegedly paying hush money to a prostitute. And this is the least problematic thing right. going on in the investigations right. right now. In any other generation in history, that right. would be all that anybody is thinking about. I mean, even with Bill Clinton, everyone kind of knew that he had the slick willy reputation and we had all the Jennifer Flower stuff and all of that. But even then, when Monica Lewinsky happened, there was a sense of, at least at first, before everybody kind of lined up in their positions of, this is gross. This is abnormal. This can't happen in the Oval Office. So immediately, people like Moynihan and Bob Carey, Senator from Nebraska, and Joe Lieberman, who later would be the vice presidential nominee, came to the floor and said, I don't know whether or not this is illegal or impeachable or any of that, but I do know right. it's awful. We don't see that now because we're bored with it. I mean, I always think about Albert Mueller's quote from 2016. You know, when he was talking about why he couldn't vote for Trump in 2016, the quote was, if I were to endorse Donald Trump, I would owe a letter of apology to Bill Clinton for mm -hmm. the things he said about him in the 90s. And then Mueller, like so many others, John MacArthur, I mean, we could make a, a long, long, long list, endorsed in 2020. And so it is, you know, you say defining deviancy down. There is this normalization. And there is this flip to a certain extent that has been talked about many times of, you know, essentially we've moved the Overton window. We've mm. moved what's acceptable in politics into this broader realm. And that can happen in a workplace, in a family, that can happen in a church. There are all kinds of situations where you just become accustomed to something for so long mm -hmm. that it doesn't even register with you. And you start to think, you know, I mean, most of the people I know in really, really toxic, licentious sorts of church situations are always saying, well, you know, mm -hmm. everybody has a gunfight after business meeting or, you know, you know everybody's <laughs> pastor is doing a little bit of human trafficking or whatever the, the right. thing is that you just become <laughs> numb to it. Right. And it really takes something from the outside to come in and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's happened to you becoming callous mm -hmm. to it? So to that point, like what, the reason we're in D.C. right now, there was an event last night about sort of the future of evangelical politics. You were on a panel with Curtis Chang and, and David French talking about this. And there were a couple of things that struck me about the event outside of what took place in the actual conversation. One was how young the room felt, yeah. how many young people were in the room. And I was sitting next to sort of a longtime DC journalist who's been sort of connected to the evangelical world for a long time. And we were talking about it. And I, that was my comment to him. I said, look, this is my first one of these deals, but this feels young. And he was like, this is very young. Like, you know, he made reference to a couple of recent Trinity Forum things that were not nearly as young, not nearly as, as representative. And then the nature of the questions during that night and the nature of the conversations that I had with lots of people during that night, it seems to me that there's this growing generation gap where you have millennials, younger millennials, especially Gen Z coming up and looking at all of this and going, I can't make heads or tails of where we are. Like, yeah. why is it like this? Do you have a sense, like, how much is that directly connected to this Donald Trump Republican politics thing? How much of it is... You know, we had questions last night about church hurt, about yeah. about Christians experiencing wounding from the church. 
And are those things connected or disconnected? Like, do they have something to do with one? I mean, I definitely have thoughts on this. I just, uh, yeah, I think they. I think they definitely do with a sense of. I think there's a generation that's disillusioned, but not ready to give up, mm-hmm. uh, and not deconstructed. If what some one means by deconstructed is is walking away, so they're in this liminal space of not really knowing what to do, and. I find that to be extraordinarily encouraging because one of the things that I worried about at the beginning of this era is, you know, we all kind of grow up around the people who are, whoever is the president kind of sets what it is to be a president, whoever is our pastor kind of sets what it is to be a pastor. Maybe people who are coming along who were in middle school at the beginning of all of this will just see all this as normal. That's not what we're finding. And mm-hmm. you have a lot of people who are saying just there has to be a different way. There has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. So I think that every time that you have a sense of saying, you know, we can imagine a different way to do this. Mm-hmm. Not, okay, let's defeat whoever's doing this over here or mm-hmm. this over there, but to say there actually is a different way if you want to think about it. Yeah. I've found that there are a lot of people saying, let's imagine that. Yeah, I think about one of my favorite things Hannah Arendt says in her book, The Human Condition. She says, the reason you can believe culture is always going to change is children. Children yeah. always come along. At one point, she says, you know, it's like every generation, a group of barbarians comes along to destroy the culture that came before them. We yeah. call them children. And I think you see that at work. And, and what I was thinking about last night, talking to a couple of young people in particular, sort of mid-20s, involved in this sort of DC world, they're in a place where the cognitive dissonance is really, really sharp. To them. Yeah. They were teenagers when all of this emerged. Mm-hmm. And my rationale would have been, well, this is going to be sort of formative to the way that they think about Christians in politics and all of this. And so the next generation is going to be even more numb to it, preternaturally, than you and I necessarily were from a couple generations before. Um, or maybe one generation before. I can't think of how old we are. <laughs> how old do you think uh, we are? Uh, it's yeah, seven yeah, in the morning. I guess, yeah. yeah. So, but what's interesting about it to me, like what I thought about after one of these conversations in particular, is that you think about what it means to grow up in an evangelical youth group where mm. piety matters, where there's this vision of like it's worth, you know, whether it's sexual ethics or whatever else, like it's worth seeking God, it's worth living with integrity and all that. Those messages haven't changed since 2016 at all. And so I I think there's a degree to which we shouldn't be surprised that that there's something in the water that young people are wrestling with making the connection of why is this happening over here in the public space? And I can't get past what I see in the Bible and what I see in what I want for the character of my pastors, my leaders, even those that I'm admiring in, in politics. Except what I find surprising is that what I'm not seeing everywhere is what I would expect, mm-hmm. which is, oh, that's awful. That means Jesus is a fraud. Right. I'm out of here. Right. I mean, there there is a lot of that, that sure. that's going on, but there also is a lot of this uh, of people who are not doing that, they're also not doing, oh, well, this is the way to be a Christian. Yeah. Let's just do this. Instead, it's, okay, we want to actually be faithful to Jesus, and how do we do that in a way that can bring everybody along? Yeah. Is this just a temporary thing, or is this just the way things are? I mean, that, and I'll tell you, I was really 
encouraged last night at the event because right before the event, there was an older man who came up, Clarence Jordan, who was a fellow graduate of Southern Seminary, but way before I was born who went and started Koinonia Farm in South Georgia, interracial community, was attacked by the Ku Klux Klan, excommunicated from his church for being against Jim Crow. This elderly man came up and said, Clarence Jordan shared the gospel with me, and I came to Christ way back in the Hmm. 1960s. And we were talking about that right after a 20-something came up and said, hey, I've only been a Christian for a few months Mm -hmm. and was excited about the things of the spirit and discipleship and wanted to talk about that. And it was just a reminder. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the spirit was at work in the darkness of Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. uh, South Georgia, and the spirit is at work in the middle of craziness. Yeah, I feel like when I have these conversations, one of the things I hear over and over again, and I know there's a degree of truth to this for me, is that when people reach the point of exhaustion, they reach the point of, well, I'm just going to give up on this. There is something eternally captivating about Jesus. Yeah. And I hear people always talk about, I can't get away from the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I can't get away from the Jesus that I see. I always think about Bill Maloney has a great lyric where he says, you know, he'll chase you like a lover right through heaven's gates. And that's been one of the most encouraging things in this season is that there's this thread of a remnant who, no matter how disillusioned they've become by all of these politics, they can't let go of Jesus. And, you know, it's made me change my mind about, there was a time years ago when I would just get exasperated with the Jesus versus religion. This is not religion, this is a relationship. And I would come in and, and say, you know, James 1 speaks of religion, and what you're trying to do is to separate Jesus from the church and, and what have you. I mean, I'm sure some of that was the case. But now I realize now that actually is a really important distinction to mm-hmm. say to someone, in many cases, what you need to differentiate is the church as you have seen it from Jesus, the head of the church, Mm -hmm. and he has not disappointed you. I saw an account this week of a Roman Catholic diocese that has started a mission of serving the Eucharist to people who have been sexually abused or hurt in Catholic churches and who can't go to Mass. And I thought, you know, I don't know if that's the way they're doing it is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. But the fact that somebody's trying to think about how to do that is a real need right now. All right. Well, on that note, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. 
They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Two weeks ago, a regional bank called Silicon Valley Bank experienced a bank run, something the U.S. financial system hasn't seen in a long, long time. This happens when people who've deposited money at the bank are nervous that they're not going to be able to get it back out. So all at once, they show up trying to withdraw or transfer their money. This caused the bank to fail, and the Federal Reserve stepped in to take it over. And it created worries that other regional banks would fail next. Some of that was because of a sense of uncertainty that that failure generated about the banks themselves. Some of it was based on concern about the spread of anxiety, that there would be a generalized panic and other banks would experience runs as well. In order to try and prevent the panic, the Federal Reserve also ensured customers that all of their deposits at Silicon Valley Bank would be protected. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but it's important to point out here that this wasn't a bank bailout like the ones that we saw during the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. Silicon Valley Bank did fail, and the owners and shareholders of the bank felt those consequences. So the actions of the Federal Reserve are protecting the money that customers deposited at the bank. In the days that followed, two more banks still found themselves in jeopardy. One was another regional bank on the West Coast called First Republic, and the other was Credit Suisse, the second largest bank in Switzerland. Banks across the U.S. stepped in to essentially save First Republic. They deposited an enormous amount of money to make sure that there wouldn't be a bank run. The Swiss government stepped in and brokered the sale of Credit Suisse to UBS, the largest bank in Switzerland. So we're going to talk about this for a few minutes here on The Bulletin and why. And since The Bulletin isn't a podcast about finances, we wanted to get down underneath this story a little bit and talk about what the moral and ethical questions are here how Christians and folks who are wondering what's happening might think about it. To set the table, there are just a few big picture things that we should keep in mind about our financial system. The first is just banking 101. Banks make money by taking a portion of the cash deposited in the bank and making loans to other customers. Those customers pay interest on the loans, and the bank uses that interest to pay their expenses, to make their profits, and typically to give a percentage of that profit back to their depositors. If they lend out too much, they might not be able to provide the money they need for their depositors when the depositor needs it, or they might make bad investments and lose it altogether. So the industry itself ends up being highly regulated to restrain from that temptation, Banks need to keep a certain amount of their money liquid, able to move it around for depositors and keep a cushion for losses if an investment or a loan fails. Now, of course, that's way oversimplified, but you get the general picture. In our moment, there are three factors that have rapidly changed the financial environment. First, back in 2018, there were steps taken to deregulate regional banks. This lowered their costs and made them more flexible in how they could lend and serve their customers. But it came with increased risk. There's always that trade-off. Second, there's all the macro changes that have taken place because of the pandemic. This begins in 2020. You have the season where certain things are shut down for a long time. Manufacturing slows. Meanwhile, you have massive infusions of cash coming into our financial system. Then housing prices raise. And generally, inflation goes up through the roof. And all of this was very unpredictable a year or two earlier. 
Third, there's what we'll call the end of the era of free money. So for years and years, interest rates have basically been zero. And that's made it easy for companies to take on loans or for entrepreneurs and startups to raise funds. When inflation began to rise in the last couple of years, the federal government raised their baseline interest rates, which meant that that era ended and interest rates across the financial system began to rise. In other words, loans became a lot more expensive. To help us understand all of this, I sat down with Dolores Bamford, co-chief investment officer for a company called Eventide, and Faina Rosenthal, a research analyst for Eventide. Their work focuses on values-based investing, which is to say they're explicitly focused on seeking ways for values like faith and a desire for human flourishing to inform their decision-making as investors. And so fundamentally, these changes in the system have created a situation where because of the rise in the interest rates, Silicon Valley's banks' investments were no longer able to sustain that balance, correct? Like the assets weren't growing at the rate that uh, that sort of got upside down with the interest rates that were hiked uh, over the over the past six nine months. Is that correct? Well, let me let me map it out, and hopefully, it's easy enough to follow. Here's Faina talking about how all of these events created a perfect storm for Silicon Valley Bank. I will say just the final pillar for setting the stage, and this will help to explain what happened in Silicon Valley, is there are some secular trends in financial services and banking that plays an important role here, which is that banking is becoming increasingly digital. It's faster to open accounts. It's faster to move money quickly. So that, you know, as we've seen, plays into the story as well. So in short, with Silicon Valley Bank, what happened was deposits more than doubled during COVID. And they had to think about what to do with those deposits. And so loans were growing to businesses, but a lot of capital went into securities, long-duration securities with maturities five, 10 years out, predominantly U.S. Treasury bills that at the time were yielding interest rates below 2%, but you have to reach for yield because in theory, right, because you have to be able to cover the cost of deposits and more. And so Silicon Valley Bank had over half of its balance sheet in these types of securities that were yielding less than 2%. And then all of a sudden, the interest rate environment shifted and new securities were yielding 4%, 5%. And so Silicon Valley at the same time was seeing deposit outflows and venture-backed tech companies burning through cash because it was harder to raise money because money was no longer free. And you have to be able to meet those demands from depositors. So Silicon Valley Bank was sitting on these long duration securities. They were seeing deposit outflows. And there were other issues too. The company, it turns out, didn't have a chief risk officer for eight months. Moody's was threatening to downgrade the bank on stability issues and potentially liquidity issues. And there were concerns raised from the Fed as well about Silicon Valley's risk management practices. So that culminated a few weeks ago on March 8th and in Silicon Valley attempting to sell its available for sale securities book at a loss because those securities were worth less now that interest rates are higher and to raise capital. And that spooked its very concentrated deposit base that's very interconnected. There are you know, venture capital firms and their portfolio companies are in communication on Twitter and their other channels. 
And that led to one of the fastest, if not the fastest bank runs in U.S. history in a matter of days. So I think the concentration of the customer base, too, as Faina was talking about, was an issue as well, right? This is Dolores Bamford. As well as sort of having high concentrations of uninsured deposits. So those also were contributing factors. There's been a lot of debate from the moment that this began in terms of the cause. The description you just laid out here is a very sort of dollars and cents explanation that makes a lot of sense. Of course, underneath that or behind that are the philosophical issues that were governing what the bank was investing in and why. But then there have been these questions as well about sort of the personnel of the bank, like who's there and why are they there and all of that. I'm curious from your perspective, given that you've got sort of politicians of the right saying, oh, this is a quote unquote wokeness problem. You have politicians on the left saying, no, 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 this is just capitalism run amok once again. I'm curious, do you hear any of that and see any truth to the matter that either financial priorities were misplaced over identity politics or that this is an echo of 2007, 2008, just again, sort of cash opportunity run amok? Sure. I would say that fundamentally, when we think about the banking system, It's built on trust and confidence in the system. That's so important. And the idea of safety and stability, that if you put your money with a bank, the risk associated with managing that will be appropriate and will be done with care and concern. And there are a number of regulatory frameworks and requirements in place to protect households and businesses when they put their money with a bank. And I think that's really the most important thing, you know, given how critical of a role banks play in society and in the functioning of society. And so I think that the real focus here has to be on to what extent banks and the people that lead them honor these principles of confidence, trust from society and safety and stability and making sure that when they're growing, they're doing it in a safe and stable way that doesn't put the whole system on on the brink of collapse. And especially as you grow quickly and your assets grow quickly. And so I think fundamentally, this is a question about management teams and leadership, risk management, appreciating the regulatory environment, even if you don't always agree with it, but doing your best to act in the interest of the whole system in some ways, because This industry is unlike others in that way. The whole system has to work for everyone to thrive. And so I would, I think I would emphasize the focus on that. Yeah, I would also emphasize, you know, the question about management judgment, right? And management risk controls and oversight as well. Also just the awareness of the lack of diversification, taking on too much growth, Fiona talked about how they took in so many deposits, they grew so fast, and there should be some risk controls there that they couldn't grow as fast without possibly putting you know, their bank at risk. So there are a lot of issues, I think moral and ethical issues, about how management managed the developments and the trends and what they allowed to take on. Can you say a little more about that? I think that's a fascinating point to me because... I listen to a lot of the commentary on this. And again, politicians sort of run to their standard talking points on this stuff. But there does seem, as I've 
looked at this and read on this, like it does seem like fundamentally this isn't necessarily a question of politics. And I say this with full awareness that I would never be hired by one of these banks or anything like this. But it does seem fundamentally a competency question, not a politics question. Some of the things people have pointed to in terms of you know, contributing to various causes and all of that. You could probably look at most banks in the United States in the environment that we're in. Most institutions are invested in various progressive ideas and progressive causes. That doesn't stand out to me, but it does seem to me some of these issues that you've described, these sort of basic questions of how investments are managed and how cash is managed, growth is managed. And so I think, you know, you made the comment, you know, to what extent this is a sort of a moral and ethical question. To bring it to a sort of theological frame even, where are you dealing with foolishness and incompetence versus where are you dealing with, say, where you can look at the financial crisis of 07 and 08, where things were truly sort of predatory and very much about taking advantage of people or or not considering the flourishing of people. Where does this situation lie in that spectrum? You're right. The situation now is different than 2007, 2008, as you said, was an issue of credit and predatory lending, crisis in the housing market. This time around, the banking system is much stronger as a whole, right? And the regulatory oversight much stronger. Hyena is talking about some holes in that, right, in terms of covering the smaller banks that may have led to Silicon Valley's demise. But with that said, I do believe that management remains critically important for banks as well as any company. And for us, from a theological perspective, I think that's very consistent to making sure that whatever company you're investing in or any company that you have deposits in, that it's being run in a conservative way by management that's being very responsible and understanding the risks and managing those risks well. I think that is all part of serving society well and loving your neighbor well, right? It's terms of taking on that responsibility of stewardship. And stewardship is a critical theological and biblical principle. And stewardship can be also applied to banking and to investment management. And in this case, management may have fallen short in taking their responsibility of stewardship and taking it in a way that would enable them to be managing the firm conservatively and to manage their growth well. There was an interesting take on all of this as well. And I think this is related. David Bonson wrote about this in in National Review this week. And one of the things he pointed out is he uses this metaphor of shiny object syndrome that a lot of time in sort of the financial and investment world, there are ideas that sort of take hold, whether it's the excitement of a venture capital story or a startup. Theranos seems like one of the sort of clear shining examples of this that was this very exciting, shiny object that lacked all kinds of basic sort of fundamentals in terms of what made sense about the company itself. In the last couple of years, you've also had kind of the cryptocurrency boom that he points to as another one of these shiny objects here. One of the lines in the story, he said, you know, this Silicon Valley bank was buying assets, spending like Dave Portnoy was the quote, which is to say haphazardly. You know, you all, as an investment firm, you are looking at lots of startups. You're looking at things that you're trying to think about in terms of, you know, use the language of human flourishing and advancement. How do you look at a marketplace where there is that kind of energy about the exciting, shiny new thing? And then balance that with these questions of stewardship and risk management. How does that shape the way you think about this 
story? You know, Mike, this topic is super important to me and is, you know, something that I've experienced over the last 30 years of my investment career. And I would say that seeing the negative consequences of capital flowing because of fear and greed, that's what you're really describing, right? As well as maybe a result of short-term profitism or arrogance, hubris, all these types of motivations, fear, greed, short-term profitism, can lead to harming society, right? Or harming different people groups. And in this case, the customers, the depositors. For me, that has led me to continue to want to go down the path of investing for human flourishing, investing with a stakeholder orientation where a company needs to be focused on the long term, needs to be focused on making sure every aspect of their business and how that's impacting their customers, their employees, supply chain, society, and managing their business in a way that is very disciplined and focused and very responsible, particularly either on the financial side as well as on the strategy and business side. And all these key factors are critically important to me. In order to invest in a company that has strong, stable, and sustainable growth and profitability that's also serving society well. Because companies, businesses are here to serve society well, not for their own personal gain. And that we are not advocates of investing or companies trying to generate profit at any cost, right? Or at any price to society. And in the end, that's going to hurt shareholders as well as all their stakeholders. And so, I think this is a good example how our form of investing, investing for all stakeholders is critically important and investing for with companies that are trying to serve society well and manage their business conservatively and well right now is critically important relative to jumping on and to capitalizing on this trend or that and taking on growth that's unsustainable and in the end could really harm their investors and their depositors. I'd love to hear you talk about, I think you used the phrase, the era of free money. To what extent does that affect the moment where we are? And related to that, do you think we've hit the end of the line, having seen Silicon Valley fail, First Republic is at risk, and Swiss Bank need a buyout, need essentially a bailout through a buyout, right? Is that chain of events finished, or are we just at the beginning of something here? Well, it's a very interesting question to ask in the middle of so much uncertainty. And, you know, the question is, is this more of the tip of the iceberg or has this crisis more or less played out and can we return to a period of more stability? But to your point about free money, of course, we know about, we read in the news that, you know, individuals, retail investors got checks that they invested in stocks and you have all the meme stocks of 2020 and this whole idea of going to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think that these vignettes are in many ways really of this time of of this era of free money and COVID and and stimulus. So you can talk about that. I wouldn't necessarily anchor on that, but when we look back on this period, I will remember this time of, of exuberance and the potential for bubbles to form in general, all sorts of bubbles to form in the era of free money. 
I think that what I would just add at a higher level that I've been thinking about is the human tendency to look for the positive and to really like to see up and to the right, like a straight line up and to the right. The human psychology draws us toward that. And oftentimes if something is really, really too good to be true, it probably or likely is. And so I think taking an approach of recognizing that I think holding ourselves accountable as investors and and values-based investors to recognize that and to verify and scrutinize more. And, you know, that's something that I'm certainly want to be very humble about as an investor and moving through very uncertain times. I think it's really important to understand what happened in Silicon Valley Bank and the idiosyncrasies, but also the bigger question about human nature that I think we're all, if we're honest with ourselves, capable of falling into. Well, Dolores Bamford, Faina Rosenthal, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you joining us today on The Bulletin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike, for the opportunity. The U.S. has had this remarkable run, a decade or more of growth in our economy. And the temptation is always to think that growth like that and success like that will just go on forever. It makes me think about the stories we tell ourselves. I live just a few miles down the road from Churchill Downs, home of the Kentucky Derby, so I can't help but think about some of these things in terms of horse racing. When you're winning, everything inside you resists the idea that at some point you're going to start losing. You almost can't imagine it. You think you've figured out how to read the racing card or what's going on at the track. You know what you're doing. Maybe you even know people at the track, and they seem like they can't lose with their tiffs. But Churchill Downs is almost 150 years old, and you don't stay in business for that long by losing money to gamblers all day. At some point, the track wins. In fact, the favorite only wins a race about a third of the time. That means that two-thirds of the time, everybody betting on the favorite is wrong. And the reasons a horse loses could be anything. The condition of the track, the performance of the jockey, the rain, something the horse ate, the noise of the crowd. You just never know. And I'm aware that this isn't a perfect analog to the financial markets. Maybe it's not even a good one since investing isn't gambling, particularly if you have good financial advisors. But my point is this, an outcome in a market or a horse race or an economy has an untold number of variables way more than a horse race, and moments like this should humble us. Nobody saw the pandemic coming. Nobody could have predicted its impact. And frankly, given the moment we're in, nobody knows what comes next. But we do know that grass withers and flowers fade, that moths and rust will come to eat and destroy. We ought to be humbled in a moment like this, which isn't to say that we don't try to discern what's happening or make judgments about why. But maybe we can do so while knowing our limits, seeking to love our neighbors, being compassionate in the way we speak, and prayerful about the consequences as they bear themselves out. We can also do all of that while remembering the birds, that God clothes every one of them and they don't worry about where their next meal comes from. Again, we don't know what's next, but we know that God does. He sees us and he cares for us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So earlier this week, after the airing of an episode of HBO's show The Last of Us, this zombie apocalypse series based on a video game, Rain Wilson, the actor who's uh, best known for playing Dwight from The Office. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. That's the one. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to rely on you, Russell, because I know you are the <laughs> office authority over here at the Bulletin. Um, but he tweeted this, and it, it got a lot of buzz. He said, I do think there's an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible-reading preacher on a show who is actually loving and kind? So I think there's two interesting things to note before we dive in. One is Rain Wilson is a member of the Baha'i faith, mm -hmm. considers himself very seriously spiritual, and talks about it pretty regularly. And then the second thing is that this series was based on a video game. And this character, David, was in the video game and was a villain in the video game, but was not a Christian or a pastor in mm. the video game. So that was like an innovation of the series was, well, let's make him, let's make him a pastor. You know, let's, let's sort of add an extra level of devil horns by making mm. him read the Bible and before he does all of these horrible things. So it sparked this conversation about the portrayal of Christians in media. And let's just start there. When you think about the way Christians are portrayed in media, do you think Wilson is right that the weight would skew towards negative portrayals of conservative Christians in media today? Yeah, but I think there are at least two reasons for that. One of the reasons being hypocrisy is always going to be a trope for obvious reasons, because there are so many evil people who are hypocrites. And so to have the person who seems to be a good guy, but is really a villain, I mean, that goes all the way back to Hawthorne and before. But the problem is it's not a useful trope anymore when every character is presented that way. So I think that's one reason for it. The second reason for it is that you have a lot of people in the culture-making aspects of American life and, and global life, not just in filmmaking, television-making, but other places too, who really don't have contact with clergy or, or with serious uh, Christians at all. So what you can end up with, I mean, you think about the sort of super preachy kind of clergy person that you would see in old, say, 1950s movies where the minister or the priest is almost this cardboard cutout good guy who's just sort of humming hymns to himself in his mind. Well, that's not a complicated human view of Christians or of ministers. And the same thing is the case when it's, oh, well, this, this person is evil and this is the trope that's being used. So I don't think that there's even enough of a personal knowledge to be able to write about it well without just falling into the stereotypes that are there. And you can see that even when it's not that sort of negative depiction. But I mean, I think about the Americans show from years ago had an episode where the daughter was a part of this nuclear freeze peace church, uh, sort of a congregation. And they had them singing 
victory in Jesus or power in the blood or something like, like, you know, yeah, there were pacifist nuclear freeze peace churches. They weren't singing victory in Jesus. <laughs> Not, if you just, if you knew people, you would know that that doesn't happen. Or someone was referencing an article about evangelicals and their crucifixes. And to come in and say, you don't even understand what you're talking So I, I think if you have everybody so far distant that all they have left are caricatures, then you're going to end up with that. And then you add to it, I mean, we have given plenty of fuel for that. And some of it can't be helped because there are going to be really high profile sorts of cases that don't speak to what the average pastor or clergy person is doing. But those are the people people know. I was reading this account a while back of the trial of Jim Baker, the old TV evangelist from the 1980s. And the judge was talking about someone called in and said, I, I wanna know if the judge is a Christian. And his response was, well, I was up until this trial, but I'm taking the Fifth Amendment now <laughs> because he had just seen such a seedy side of what pretended to be Christianity. Well, I mean, we, we have some responsibility for that, too. I think another way that Christians don't help with this is that if you look at Christian media, Christian storytelling, Christian movies, television, books, whatever, there's a tendency to create such a squeaky clean image yeah. of like the good Christians versus the bad Christians yeah. that in both directions, you're creating these very sort of one-dimensional characters that are unrelatable. I mean, it's funny. Somebody said this the other day. I can't remember who I was listening to. I was listening to a podcast and they talked about Ned Flanders, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Homer's next door neighbor. Yeah. And the comment that they made was that Ned Flanders is actually one of the more positive yeah. examples of an evangelical Christian on television because, yeah, he has all the hokey, goofy personality stuff, but he also has this character where he's always generous. He's always sacrificial. He's always forgiving of the horrible and stupid things that Homer Simpson puts him through on the show. You know, the episode where his wife dies, this is this mm -hmm. incredible moment of sort of grief and sort of inner struggle with Ned Flanders. And so it's striking in that case. I mean, I think the comment that they made that was interesting was there had to be an evangelical in the writer's room, or there had to be somebody who understood evangelical culture in the writer's room. Yeah. And, and it would take a particular kind of person who's, who's maybe grew up in an evangelical context, but isn't in rebellion. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they don't still hold to it, but they're affectionate toward it. But, and that's, that's part of the problem with a lot of Christian media is that I think some people would say, well, yeah, we do show the fact that people are sinners. Yes. But typically what happens is that somebody is doing something wrong and then there's this moment of epiphany. And then after that, the person is squeaky clean, sort of pure, which is not the biblical picture of what it means to be, you know, as, as Luther would say, simultaneously justified and sinful, or what the Bible's talking about, about this constant repenting of sin, which means in either direction, you end up with a false view of what actual virtue looks like. And people start to just give up if they have this super Ned Flandersy view of what it means to be a Christian. And they start to say, well, then I must not be a Christian because I'm still grappling with all of these vices and sins. And of course, that's 
the normal Christian life. Uh, sanctification doesn't happen in a moment where you suddenly, the music starts and you, oh, now I realize. I mean, there are some parts of our life where that happens, but not for the most part. And maybe like part of the problem is that because the life of faith is this long obedience in the same direction, it's this slow process. Is it possible, and you could speak to this from the perspective of literature as well, I know you're deeply read on some of these things, is it possible that the life of faith, when it's a feature of the character, doesn't always necessarily translate well, except in those odd juxtapositions, except in the, you know, the example of the hypocrite or the example of a Flanders character that's sort of the subject of abuse and is sort of putting up with it. It's like television in particular, everything has to be a little bit larger than life in order to kind of keep you interested. You know, is that is that part of the problem is that faith doesn't translate in that way to the medium, where maybe in literature it does. Yeah, and I can think of a couple of examples. I mean, you think about even Elder Zosima in Brothers Karamazov. If you read that section, you're going to see this, what seems at first to be a super idealized kind of super Christian. But then the main plot twist that happens is when he dies, his body decays, which isn't supposed to happen for somebody who's a saint. And that becomes this question of, disillusionment that's there. And in modern times, I think maybe the best representation of clergy, particularly in the Christian life that I've seen, is in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, because she gives you two pastors who are genuinely human beings in the sense of they don't always treat their kids right, they're grappling with uh, doubts, but they're genuinely in touch with grace. And you have that complicated view of these are people who really are believers and they really are attempting to follow Christ. And they're like me, stumbling fools and don't do that always well. That makes me think of uh, Robert Capon's novel, Exit 86, which is about a priest caring for his parish after one of his parish members commits suicide. Mm. And if you read the novel, if you know anything about Capon's life, it's very obvious that Capon himself was an Episcopal priest, but he was also a food critic for the New York Times and wrote a number of novels. And when you read the novel, you you know very quickly that the priest character is based on Capon himself, who had moral difficulties, we'll say. And so you read this character who's genuinely trying to sort of love and pastor his congregation, and you worry about him a little bit. Like, yeah. oh, dude, there's the weak spots. You know, they're there. Yeah. But there's something very compelling about that. And I would imagine that's a difficult thing to translate to the screen. Not that it's an excuse, because I do think something you said earlier is, is maybe the most significant one, which is simply that evangelical Christians are just often not in the room when you're doing the writing and the character development and so forth. Yeah, or sometimes if we are in the room, we think we carry the weight of counterbalancing all the caricatures so that somehow it makes it better if you end up with a superheroism or preachiness in the other direction, which which doesn't work. Right, right. The God's not dead problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Last question before we wrap this part of the conversation. If somebody says to you, I want to watch a really redemptive film, doesn't have to feature Christian characters. Somebody's <sighs> like, man, I want to watch a really, really redemptive story. What's your recommendation? You know, I'm the wrong person to ask for that, Mike. Because Are you the wrong person or do you not want to be on the hook for the wrong uh, No, it's not that I don't want to be on the hook. It's that, it's that the way that I do with movies is I see them 
and I don't remember them at all. I mean, <laughs> and so it's just kind of the opposite of books for me. I cannot remember anything that I have seen until somebody comes back and says, oh, remember that? And, and so I don't know. I mean, there was a movie that I hated the first time that I watched it. And I think you and I have talked about this before. And I've watched it over and over again. And every time that I've watched it, I've loved it more. And it's escaping me right now, the the name of it. Um, but but um, uh, the, the family in Waco, Brad Pitt. Um, Tree of Life. Yeah, Tree of Life. Uh, the first time I saw it, I thought, eh, this is kind of pretentious and so forth. And then... I think part of it is once I kind of understood what it was doing, it affected me more. And then part of it is, I think, having children that as they're growing older, I can get the kaleidoscope of it all better than I could. Well, it's hard to argue with Tree of Life. I'll go in the polar opposite direction <laughs> with a recommendation. Okay. It's a fable. It's it's unsubtle in many ways. But the movie I always tell people to to look at is Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, I haven't thought about that in years. So it's written by John Patrick Shanley. People forget this, but it, it, he's a Tony Award winning playwright, Oscar winning screenwriter. And it's this incredible, again, it's just a, it's a fairy tale. If you think of it as a fairy tale, you can start to really see it. And it's this guy who has been traumatized as a fireman, been traumatized by his encounters with death, and he wants to die. He wants to sort of give it all up. And death is chasing him all through this movie. And yet the grace of God chases him all the way through it too. And it just becomes very apparent, like God loves Joe and God is going to protect Joe. There are some moments in that with Tom Hanks that are just absolutely beautiful. And it's hilarious and absurd, but it's the original Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie as well that preceded all of the oh, others. Yeah. So. You know, what? one of the things that my wife knows about me is that I get really moved. If I'm going to kind of tear up watching something, <laughs> it's usually the series finale of really good sitcoms. So I'm going to kind of tear up watching the series finale of Cheers or Newhart or MASH or The Office, Parks and Rec. Uh, the Office particularly, I mean, that one, when you get to the end and Pam talks about beauty in ordinary things, and isn't that really what this has all been about? I mean, that- That's oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful, and it's and it really does point to grace. I cried at the end of How I Met Your Mother, but that was because I wondered why I wasted nine years watching the show. <laughs> yeah, so. Sometimes it's like that. All right. Thank you, Russell. Thank you as well to Dolores Bamford and Faina Rosenthal. And thanks each of you for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens, hosted by Mike Cosper and Russell Moore. Our music is by Dan Phelps. Our graphic design is by Brian Todd. Additional design by Dady Creative. Social media by Kate Lucky. Associate producer, Azure Phelps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. 
Do you want to grow in your influence? Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.